Welcome to New Books and Popular Music, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. In this episode, I talk with James Green Jr. about his book, This Music Leaves Stains, The Complete Story of the Misfits, published in 2013 by the Scarecrow Press. Like many teenagers in northeastern New Jersey's Bergen County, Glenn Anzalone made regular trips into New York City. It is there that this horror movie and comic book-obsessed artist, like so many of his generation, it was the 1970s, discovered punk rock all of the Ramones. Soon enough, he had a band of his own, rechristening himself Glenn Danzig and bringing in brothers Gerald, a.k.a. Jerry Only, and Paul, a.k.a. Doyle, Kayafa, as well as a rotating cast of players including, at various times, Black Flag veterans Robo and Des Cadena. It is the lineup of Danzig, Jerry, Doyle, and drummer Arthur Googie that made Walk Among Us, generally considered to be a classic in the genre of hardcore horror rock. There were numerous conflicts among the band members in the 1980s and 90s, leading to numerous changes in the lineup. Danzig, of course, left the band in 1983 to form Sam Hain, and the more commercially successful band sporting his own name, Danzig. In the mid-90s, after winning the rights to the name Misfits from Danzig, Jerry Only and Doyle, rechristened Doyle Wolfgang von Frankenstein, formed the band, reformed the band, added a couple new players, and performed for the next five years, at which point brothers Jerry and Doyle had a falling out of their own, the result of which was Doyle leaving the band. The current lineup consists of Jerry Only on bass and vocals, Black Flag alum Des Cadena on guitar, and Eric Chupacabra Arse on the skins. All of this, of course, and more, I learned by reading James Green Jr.'s band history. James Green Jr. lives in Brooklyn, New York. However, I reached him in Deltona, Florida for this interview. Hello, James, and welcome to New Books and Popular Music. Thank you, Matthew. I'm thrilled to be here. Great. Um, uh, Why don't we start first with a little biography. Tell us a little bit about who you are, where you grew up, that kind of thing, please. Okay, great. Uh, Well, my name is James Green Jr., um, I was born and raised in a small Connecticut town called Ridgefield, uh, which is very bucolic and quaint and fantastic to live in if you're an adult, but kind of boring if you're a kid. And um, I've been, and I think that's what spurned my interest in the odd and the weird because uh, there wasn't much of it there. And I've been a freelance writer for. I guess seven or eight years now, uh, and this Misfits book is my most visible and noted accomplishment so far. Uh, so that's uh, and I worked at Taco Bell for two years in college. I feel that's important to point out. Where where did you go to college? Uh, I went to college at the University of Central Florida uh-huh. uh, in or beautiful Orlando, and um, not too many famous alums. Uh, Cheryl Hines from Curb Your Enthusiasm went there, uh-huh. and actually the uh, I take that back. The guys who made the Blair Witch Project they made it. They were at UCF or shortly uh-huh. after graduating UCF they made it, I believe. Uh-huh. What What do you mean that you're you're uh, you have an interest in the weird? What does that mean, James? Well, uh, I mean, I wrote a book about the misfits who, despite <laughs> despite being uh, an enormously popular punk band definitely aren't on the same level as uh, the Ramones or the Clash. And, um, yeah, it means that I'm drawn to anything, you know, like my, my favorite, my favorite TV shows uh, of all time are stuff like Space Ghost Coast to Coast, uh, Mr. Show. Like I can't, I, I don't like anything like, yeah, everyone's obsessed with Mad Men or Breaking Bad. I can't watch shows like that. I, I can't, like like fish like fictionalized drama stuff like that just does, it seems like the most rote uninteresting thing in the world to me uh you know and i guess growing up you know it's a very there were a lot of deadheads where i grew up uh-huh so that kind of pushed me to uh you know harder music or you know things that were more extreme, and uh, you know just just things like you know I I don't I mean certainly there are a lot of things I like that are very popular and mainstream. I'm not you know some complete separatist, but yeah, for the most part, I'm more interested in in things that haven't gotten a lot of attention or things that are purposely uh, not molded to be like uh, digestible 
for mass audiences. <laughs> so, so, so then tell us, uh, James, uh, why specifically did you write a book about the misfits and, and how did it come about? Well, um, it came about because I, I had, there were a couple other books, uh, that I had tried to write, um, like in 2001, 2002, I tried to put a, put together a book about the dead Kennedys. And then shortly after that, I was working on something about star Wars fan culture, uh, and how it was like really like because of the prequels, it was really breaking off into weird places. Um, and, but I, no, those projects didn't go anywhere. And I, I, my only goal in life has always been to get a book published. And, uh, you know, I got my, I, I got a, pretty all right freelance career going uh for a while and then uh in 2011 uh i i lost i was working i was writing for crawdaddy uh the website slash magazine uh and i lost my job crawdaddy folded and then i just kind of realized like well i think uh i think now is the time to buckle down on writing a book uh while i am completely unemployed and have no obligations and i realized you know what no one no one's written a book about the misfits which is bizarre because you know every day you see and i'm i'm not putting down these artists at all further but i'm saying like you see like well there have been like eight books on morrissey there have been how many books on Graham Parsons or, or whoever, and no one's written about the Misfits. And you know, their singer was like a top forty artist for a hot second, and you know, they influenced Metallica and Guns N' Roses and all these other people. And well, why hasn't this been done yet? And I've, I've been a fan of theirs for so long. At that point, I said, I'm just going to try and do this and see where it goes. And I somehow got, got it published. Uh-huh. Uh, Fabulous, and, and you've seen them live, probably. I have, yes. I've, uh-huh. I saw them multiple times uh, on the reunion tour in the mid '90s. I, I was, you know, I'm only 34. I didn't. I was just four years old when the original band broke up, so I wasn't going to a lot of punk shows as a toddler. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I definitely. Uh, I saw them. The first time I saw them was 1997. Uh, when they were touring with Marky Ramone and the Intruders, and mm-hmm. uh, that was like, you know, one of those. Fe- it seems like a lot of times, uh, at, at least in my, in my experiences, like there would rarely be like a concert package where it was like, okay, there's two pretty solid things happening here. And I was like, uh, yeah, you know, Marky Ramone and the Intruders are pretty great, and you know, these Misfits guys, they seem pretty wild. I'm sure that'll be something, something nutty. Uh, and it was, <laughs> and it, you know, it, it, I mean, before I had come to the recording shortly before that, like the original recordings, and uh, I was kind of like, you know, this is fascinating how just how this exists and how this is a whole world that is just kind of compartmentalized upon itself, but so many people are into it. Uh, it just seemed like another weird this this totally new sub like subset of of punk culture. Uh, and it, yeah, I just f- fell into it and didn't really look back. Uh, and yeah, there were even, you know, people, people want to, I mean, obviously people have differing opinions about the reunion versus the original band, but I, I thought that the reunion band was, was great, uh, certainly great live. I, and I think the records they made were, were pretty great. So, uh, yeah, I ended up seeing them about four or five times after that. Mm-hmm. Fabulous. So, so let's let's get to the book now. Um, now that we know a little bit about you, James. Um, okay. Uh, talk about uh, Lodi, New Jersey. Lodi. Lodi, New Jersey. Lodi. Yeah. Well. Lodi. Lodi, New Jersey. Although I imagine the marijuana smokers probably say Lodi once in a while. Of course, of course, because you know the <laughs> Slick Rick uh, hit Lottie Dottie. Uh, uh-huh. You know, it, yeah, it's confused a generation, but that's okay because Slick Rick is great. He is, he from, is he from Lodi too? No, no, no. Uh, he isn't. He's from. He was born in England, actually. So oh, right. okay. He's really fancy. He's a fancy guy. But no, uh, you know, Lodi, Lodi. It's pronounced <laughs> Lodi. Um, Lodi. Yeah, it's pretty suburban, uh, regular, run-of-the-mill, leave-it-to-beaver style New Jersey town. 
that start, it was, you know, one of the many places in America that benefited from the post World War II boom. Um, you know, mostly blue collar, but, you know, not, certainly not, not comparable to like an Allentown. Uh, yeah, there's a, it's, it just, it's your basic average, uh, American town. You can't imagine, uh, you really can't imagine anything that odd occurring there. It's, it's not like, a, you know, it seems like a safe, um, certainly fine place to raise a family. Uh, and I mean, granted, there are, you know, some certain, like, you know, whatever you want to make of the mob connections there. Uh, but I feel like that maybe has been a little, a little, um, enhanced or, uh, like exaggerated because of the Sopranos. Um, but yeah, you know, it's it, like, I, it's a fine place to be. I've visited it several times and, uh, it's not that you, your first, uh, your first inclination upon visiting isn't, oh, I bet Glenn Danzig grew up here. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell us about Glenn Danzig growing up, please. <laughs> well, don't mind if I do. <laughs> uh, uh, Glenn was, um, he was, he was the younger, but not the youngest of, uh, of four brothers. And, uh, you know, his father was a TV repairman. Mother was, uh, worked in a department store, but was mainly a, a stay at home mom. Uh, mother nurtured his, his interest in, in art and music and, uh, nothing, nothing, uh, nothing in his early life, uh, that we know of that would have spurned such his, such an interest in the occult or doom and gloom. Um, just, it's not, it was, I guess he was just attracted to it. You know, that's, that's one of the big things is people ask all the time what makes or what made Glenn Danzig, Glenn Danzig, like there's some kind of event. Uh, you know, and it, you know, it, it just isn't. It's just he, for whatever reason, he had an interest in the, in the more macabre, uh, as, and as such is often the case, you know, there isn't always one thing to point to. By all accounts, it was a very normal, you know, there wasn't like a violent parent. There wasn't like some tragedy and just, you know, your normal everyday upbringing as far as anybody knows. As far as anybody knows, you, you mentioned you mentioned a few things like like the movie The Night of the Living Dead as mm-hmm. an influence. Oh, certainly, yeah, yeah, and I think that's another thing. Like, I mean, I don't think Glenn Danzig is like an isolated incident. I'm sure there were tons of kids, uh, tons of young adults and teenagers who were like you know living in this weird, uh, you know, sort of like I said, leave it to Beaver, father knows best society that began fragmenting in the 60s because not just of things like Vietnam uh, and and uh, like musical changes um, but also because uh, you know like underground cinema like Night of the Living Dead and, and things like that kind of bubbling up to the surface before uh, the ratings board really uh, got in place or you know when, they, when you know the movie industry was much less uh, controlled and ham-fisted uh, yeah, and, and, yeah, and Idle Living Dead was such a departure from e- even the normal, ho- uh, horror movies that Hollywood was pumping out. It was really a, com- like a total tone shift. And I think it, it struck a lot of people. It's still, you know, it's still to this day, you know, there are people who, that that's the all time, the, the ground zero for everything. <laughs> for everything. Yeah. Well, for certain, you know, certain people say there, you know, whereas Danzig doesn't, might not have one thing in his life where he can say this changed me. I mean, you go to a horror convention or comic con or something and everyone's, oh, I saw this movie and it, it made me look at things this way. And there's certainly tons of people who say Night of the Living Dead changed the way I thought about things. So, so, uh, he lived up there in Lodi, but this is the 1970s, right? Like the mid 70s. Yeah, when the band, when the when he started getting into music, like performing. Yeah. So, so like a lot of teenagers of his generation and that geographical area, for entertainment, uh, he he went down to New York City, right? Yeah, that's true. But I want to point out that. Like by the mid seventies, Glenn was already in his twenties. He wasn't a teenager. Okay. Um, but yeah, he yeah, of course. Like anybody in the in the 
New York City radius, the outlying areas, yeah, he would go into New York and see shows and experience the whole different, you know, <laughs> different planet that New York City's always been. Uh, yeah, and he was, you know, stuff like the Velvet Underground. Um, there was, it was like, you know, the New York scene influenced him, but also the, you know, the, the heavy metal that was coming in, like, uh, you know, he always points to Black Sabbath. Well, that's like one of the first things he mentions. Um, so, and it's, it's clear when you look at it now, it's like, oh, of course, Danzig is kind of a, the misfits and everything he's done since has kind of been like a combination of Black Sabbath and like Velvet Underground, Ramonzi type of things. Um, but yeah, he started, obviously started going to the city and, uh, thinking like, you know, I want to start performing, uh, because there weren't any, he didn't have any other, uh, have as much drive to do other things. He was a he was a visual artist like a painter too though right or a drawer? Uh, yeah, he was a he was he yeah he drew he wanted to like he did comic book drawings and he uh, submitted he submitted some stuff to Marvel and uh, mm-hmm. he took some classes on comic book drawing and stuff but uh, the obviously the uh, passion for singing and music was greater. And, and what was going on as as well as Black Sabbath of course was like punk rock. He said the Ramones and you know that was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm sure that was a, this new freedom for rock and roll bands. Yeah. And what you can do. Yeah, and, certainly. Uh, certainly. Um, what about now? <laughs> See, I feel like you're teasing me there. No, no, I'm not teasing you. Um, we're, we're agreeing. Okay. Um, uh, now there's a lot of, so, so Glenn is, is the beginning of the book. Um, mm-hmm. now there's lots and lots of other characters that come and go from yeah. the misfits. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure which, which ones you want to focus on. For me, I suppose the, the focus should be on, on Jerry and Doyle and how they come to the band. Yeah. But well, if I mean, you, if you want to preface that with the, the, a year or two before they get in the band, you, you can. Yeah, sure. I mean, the, yeah, the misfits in terms of members was kind of like a, like Saturday Night Live, like hard to keep track of who's on it and who's not. Um, but yeah, the, the misfits began, uh, when like Glenn, uh, heard, I believe, I think I might get this backwards, but it was when Glenn met Jerry through Manny Martinez, the drummer, uh, and they were just, they were all kind of in the neighborhood and they ne- had never really met before, but one day they ran across each other and the conversation between Glenn and Jerry was something of like, Oh, you know, you're into that punk rock stuff. He's like, yeah, you know, I like Generation X and the Damned. Oh, I like those bands too. Like, you know, and Jerry had just received a bass guitar as a Christmas gift. And they said, well, let's get together and try to do some stuff. And so they started as a trio and they put out one single and they played some shows uh, with Glenn singing and playing uh, electric piano uh, with Jerry on bass and Manny playing drums. But then, uh, you know, it became, it was obvious that I'm saying, you know, I say obvious a lot. That's, that's like, you know, instead of swearing, I just say obvious and I apologize uh, for a writer. I don't have a large vocabulary. Um, so they just, eventually it was, they said, you know what, we're not, this isn't aggressive enough. So Jerry's friend, Frank Lycata, who took the name Franche Coma, he joined up as the guitar player. And then Manny left, and then uh, another mutual friend, Mr. Jim, came in to play drums. And that's really that lineup of Glenn, Jerry, Frank, and Mr. Jim is really where sort of the big step forward. That was the lineup that recorded Static Age and where the, the Misfits sound, as people generally know it, began, clicked um, as this kind of brooding, like stark take on, uh, you know, on the, on the Ramones and, and, uh, the, the heartbreakers and the New York stuff like that. And yeah, it wasn't until, you know, then they had a, another, they had another lineup change, like Frank and Mr. Jim left and then Bobby Steele and on guitar and Joey image on drums came in and they were, they were there for, a couple years, year or two, and that's that was the lineup that really started a big groundswell in New York. They were playing like Max's Kansas City and CBGBs and stuff, and that's when the band kind of started kicking up some dust. Um, but yeah, and, and the way Jerry tells it is he always wanted his younger brother Doyle, 
whose real name is Paul, to play guitar in the band because uh, he thought it would look good because he's a big, young, strapping Italian lad, uh, and he would look cool and sexy. And, it, you know, he did when he joined the band in um, 80 or 81. Um, yeah, that he did. He absolutely did. That's definitely what pushed their pushed their image to the iconic status when it became like, you know, and over the over this time period, they of course, you know, began they they put in decided you know what there are no punk rockers who are really like muscle bound and physically fit. Like let's go with that as our image. And by the time Doyle joined, it it was like Danzig was this muscular. So like you know he was short but he was obviously very powerful looking and then Jerry on Doyle and, or like a head above him on either side uh very you know again like always playing with their shirts off and like not intentionally flexing but obviously playing with a lot of vigor and yeah it was really a striking thing compared to you know Joe Ramone who was you know just this like he was kind of had the dimensions of a coat hanger or, uh, you know, most of the other punk bands are just like, you know, skinny 17-year-old white kids who weren't very – didn't strike a physically imposing demeanor. Uh, and that – I think that obviously helped push the uh, – like the, mis- the Misfits music was already very forceful and that, that reinforced it, the, that image. I think uh, the misfits are interesting in the sense of, of uh, they are always so obviously intentional and and this I don't know it, I often think of it they're kind of part of the second wave of a wave of punk some kind it's called hardcore you know where uh, um, the image a lot of bands at that time tried to portray was of not having an image like we're the same when we're off stage when we're on stage yeah and, and, and you know we're not muscly we're not going to go you know get physically fit just so we look good to the fans but then here are the misfits who are you know so obviously over the top with all of this mm-hmm. oh yeah sure sure and what's interesting is that you know you you look at the misfits and they did garner a lot of uh, comparisons to Kiss, uh, sometimes, so. sometimes positively, sometimes like as an insult. Uh, but that would later become this, you know, when the band originally broke up, like one of the one of Danzig's many reasons as to why he no longer got along with Jerry and Doyle was that he he hurled the accusation that they didn't live the lifestyle. They weren't wearing their stage clothes off stage and he apparently was and they weren't committed to this this uh i guess this grave robbing corpse beating lifestyle that dancing wants us all to believe he he does uh you know and that it definitely blurs it you know kind of blurs the line like i don't i don't think that i don't think dancing is like you know feasting on entrails when he's off stage but i know he's probably also not like sitting around in a t-shirt that says like i went to the bahamas and all i got was this lousy t-shirt and like sipping a mai tai uh (laughs) you know it's it's definitely a very odd it's very there's you know the whole thing is kind of blurry it's not like a gene simmons thing where on stage she's dressed like the monster and off stage she's in an armani suit and that's funny because later on in the book, you know, we can jump around. That's okay. Um, and I actually, I actually looked these up on the internet after you wrote about them. You know, there's this image of of, of Danzig. I don't know where he is, living in L.A. or whatever, and carrying cat litter, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And exactly. how, how for for most celebrities, you know, why would this be, be a big deal? But this became a big deal, and the, and where he gets punched and, and he yeah, falls yeah, down, yeah. that other one. And those are all over the internet. You're right. Yeah, yeah, because he spent so many years perpetuating this idea that like he's he he he's no nonsense the buck stops here everything you see is what you get i'm a i'm a, a jeet kundo master and i'm into the occult and um you know I, I i just live this lifestyle and uh it's like yeah but you're also like a weightlifter from new jersey um and you know you're not yeah and it's it's not a yeah it's too it's too much it's too easy for people to be like Oh well, you know you're, and he's wearing a dancing shirt while he's buying kitty litter, <laughs> so it's like 
you're, uh, you know, you love kitties. Yeah. So what? He, <laughs> but of course, like he's human. He's not. He's not an alien. Like he's not. Uh, I yeah. I mean, you know, this has been in the news recently, and I'm certainly not saying that Glenn Danzig is uh, in the same ballpark as J.D. Salinger, but all this stuff is coming out about Salinger's private life and how, like, oh, my God, he watched the Mary Tyler Moore show. How could he? That, like, lowers his him in our eyes, and it's like, you know, he's just a guy. Like, right. well, you know, he's not going to be, like, uh, poignant and, and, and uh, you know, poetic every moment of his life. Like, he's got bills to pay. He's got TV to watch, you know? Uh-huh. Uh so the only person I can think of who has really succeeded in doing uh, in, in in keeping photos of themselves out of the press like that, where they're buying boring household items, is Morrissey, who I mentioned earlier. Like I, he has really he's really committed to the Morrissey thing, and I think that would be the only thing that would be more shocking is if you know, we saw him walking out of a grocery store with like poppycock or cookie crisp. <laughs> You know that would be shocking. There's a few. I think I think Prince, Prince has done a pretty good job at it too. That, oh, that's true. Is. That's true. But the, that Chappelle show skit really that <laughs> decimated. You know, whereas like oh, Prince eats pancakes like the rest of us commoners. Yeah. Uh, so let's get back to the band. Okay. Um, um, so so we've kind of got the the classic lineup of them secured, except for the Googie, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, when Doyle, yeah, jo- just before Doyle joined. Uh, Googie came in, but I, I want, I want to make sure that like, I think that each lineup to itself is classic. Like they all did something uh-huh. unique and worthy of like saying that this is classic. Like I feel that the static age line, like, you know, even as a trio, like that, the single that Jerry, Manny and Glenn recorded together, uh, cough cool is, I mean, it's not like anything else. I've ever heard. It's like this, this, it's, it's like this goth punk keyboard thing. Um, you know, and the, like Glenn's vocals or that, that may be one of the, like the, the, the way they recorded his vocals on that are just like amazing. It just, you, you feel everything. And like the static, static age as an album is, I don't think they really topped it. It's just this perfect, like it really feels like you're being drawn into this murky world of of violence and punk uh but the 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 songwriting is also incredible like every it's like every one of those songs if they weren't about like pitchforking babies it could be on the radio um you know and the bobby the singles that they did with bobby steel and joey image are like they they injected a uh, more humor, more fun into like you know horror business and Night of the Living Dead are fun songs. They're still like rough and they're still like uh, violent, but they're more like there there's a more relaxed like kind of you know elbow you in the ribs type of feel to it. Um, but certainly, you know it, when it, they really the Misfits didn't really begin touring as heavily as they did until Doyle and Googie got in the band. I mean, I'm, t- I'm talking nationwide. So that's that's where that that is often the starting point for most people where uh you know uh, um like Arthur Googie, this drummer who had only played for like a couple months in a band before joined the Misfits and his lack of like percussive finesse you might say is evident, but it it also really helped the songs say they really like underlined how like the brutality of Danzig's lyrics or Doyle's guitar playing. And yeah, you know, Doyle himself wasn't that accomplished a guitar player, but that I think it served the themes that they were going with. Um, so, so when, when, and you're right, I mean, but, but outside of the people that have like yourself, maybe that are pretty hardcore fans of the band, um, you know, most of us, and maybe it's just my age and when I was introduced to the band, but the Walk Among Us as the the album and that, that lineup and their touring around that, that, that seems to be uh, the one that's frozen in our culture over time is that era. Yeah, certainly, certainly. And that's because it's the Walk Among Us is the album that has it's existed the longest. You know, Static Age 
wasn't released in full until 1997. And like Walk Among Us was the first piece of Misfits, like most people got a hold of. And it, you know, it was reissued on compact disc in the eighties and that around the time that, you know, Metallica covered some of their songs on that Garage Days EP or like the 598 Garage thing. Uh, yeah. And like Walk Among Us is a great, great album. And there's like, some of their best songs are on that. Like, and they, I think as a Danzig songwriting really tightened up for Walk Among Us. I think it's only the only, the only issue with it is the, uh, like the production or the, the mixing is really flat and there isn't much depth to, to the music. There isn't, there isn't the same weight that you hear on Static Age or even on Earth AD. Um, I think that's its only drawback, but yeah, certainly. And that's when also, like I said, their image was, you know, the cover of that record is them standing in front of like that giant bat monster and there's UFOs and, uh, you know, they've literally pasted themselves into a horror movie. Uh, so it really, it's like, yeah, you know, this is totally on the nose. We get it. You're the misfits, uh, violent world. Okay. Let's go with this. Um, and yeah. And also, yeah, all this, all the melodies are very, Everything on Walk Among Us, you can sing along to. So it's very, it's almost like a Broadway experience. Either a Broadway experience or more of a uh, an English kind of, you know, oi band kind of soccer football chant kind yeah, of song. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh-huh. Uh, it, you know, any chanting in any any region, it's <laughs> it's yeah, it it's definitely speaks to that. And I think because there are they they ramp that that also adds the sense of community of like we can sing along. It's okay for us to sing along to this, to this. I think with their other albums, there was a sense that you were always on the other side, that you were always just kind of looking in and not that walk among us is definitely a very inviting record. I I have a, my walk among us story is this, that I was in high school when it came out and I had this friend, Tom and uh, Tom owned the record. Mm-hmm. Tom lent it to my other friend, Chris, Mm-hmm. Chris, Chris's mom read the lyrics and she, she literally destroyed it as a vinyl EP. She literally smashed it to pieces after reading the lyrics. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, you know, it's not for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't for Chris's mom, apparently. No, no. Uh, uh, they were like a Black Sabbath of, of hardcore there for a while. Kind of evil. Yeah, I mean, certainly, listen, there's, uh, you know, my mother certainly was not pleased when, uh, you know, I, Put a, I had a giant poster that was a recreation of the the bullet single where Kennedy's head is being. They took the uh, like the, they did like a Lichtenstein print of Kennedy in the uh, in the Cadillac and then like painted blood behind his head. And you know my mom was like you know I don't know listen I'm pretty liberal but uh what's up with this? Uh, and yeah, there's their their dancing lyrics are intense, um, but. I think you have to go sometimes someone has to force you to go there sometimes you can't you know it's I, and his his as jokey as a lot of the songs are there are a lot of passages in the lyrics that are like wow this this makes me think this this is uh you know really beautiful writing and what does this mean and uh yeah I, I think it's a good balance there um uh-huh. And that came out on Ruby Records, which is on on the West Coast. How did they get a, get in contact with Ruby Records? How'd that work out? Yeah, um, well, there's differing uh, differing stories. The uh, Chris uh, Jardins, whose name I'm sure I butchered, was the uh, Ruby. He was the the guy working at Ruby. He was also in the Flesh Eaters. And he says, uh, the way he remembers it, he's not sure if he got in touch with Danzig or if Danzig called him, but originally they contacted because Danzig wanted to take an ad out in Slash Magazine, and Slash was the parent company of Ruby. And uh, they somehow got to talking, and they're like, yeah, you should do a, do a one-record contract with us. And in an unusual turn of events, uh, Danzig and the Misfits, who are usually pretty pretty fierce and cagey about doing everything themselves said yeah why not i think maybe because they could see that uh slash and ruby were you know they were managing to really blow the germs up in a certain way 
And uh, they also had uh, Fear and X. And I think they, they probably just felt like, well, this is a little – this label is more attuned to the type of things we're doing than, say, you know, because the other – like, who else was there that was signing punk bands at the time? Like, Sire Records. Mm-hmm. They were a little – they were a little more pop-oriented. Um, you know, they're just – I think it was probably – and they felt like they, – I, I imagine they felt like – uh, there, there's, this hasn't really ever been explained too thoroughly, but it seems like they're like, yeah, let's take a chance because these people seem to have the resources and they're on a hot streak. So why not? And, and they were, they had plan nine records as theirs, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was the, that was the Danzig's record label, the Misfits oh. record label. Yeah. And they released that early, those early singles and such were on that. Yeah. Yeah. Everything, um, Everything featuring Glenn Danzig singing through, through most of Samhain, through I think all of Samhain was released except uh, no, I don't think Final Descent. Most, let's say the majority. There was a big span where everything was on Plan Nine Records, and that uh, you know that of course was uh, like Plan Nine was. I don't know how you want it forced into defunct status because of the uh, lawsuit later on. Um, but yeah, all those, if you find original copies of the records, they all have that really cool Plan 9 logo that's done like the Sex Pistols logo. Mm-hmm. So. And course, they were. Oh, go ahead. Uh, the, well, the, the Misfits were, uh, very image conscious, as we've already mentioned. But, oh, uh, yes. <laughs> and since you brought up the logo, you could, uh, talk about the, 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 the most famous Misfits logo, the, the skull. Ah, the Crimson Ghost, yeah. The Crimson Ghost, the yeah. Crimson Ghost, too. Not actually crimson, actually white, <laughs> but, uh, and even in the original, the original, the Crimson Ghost is a character from a 1940s movie serial. This is back when, you know, before television and, uh, you know, they could make short little movies and people would pay money to go see them and then come back the next week and pay more money. Pretty good racket. Uh, so, yeah, there was a Republic Pictures created the this detective noir series about the Crimson Ghost, who was a a criminal mastermind who wore a, this this intense, very striking skull mask. And uh, you know, if you watch the like you you see it now and you you associate you know the, the Jerry and, and Glenn found an old poster for the Crimson Ghost in the 70s and said, hey, we should start using this thing. And uh, lucky for them, like the copyright had lapsed at that point or whoever owned it was like a, it was like a holding company in Oklahoma or whatever. And there was they just there was n- no way they were going to get in serious trouble because of they were just some, you know, schmo punk band at the time. Uh, and they had no idea it was going to be this huge thing later. Uh, but it's funny if you look at the Crimson Ghost now, most people associate it with dancing's voice and like that powerful jim morrison type of thing but if you watch the original crimson ghost serials he's, he you know he talks with this kind of weird red like ah, i'm the crimson ghost and i'm gonna get you it's like this weird like eddie, Mur- <laughs> eddie murphy doing the white guy voice uh <laughs> so it's really like jarring um but yeah it was uh, in terms of uh like they couldn't have picked a more perfect uh object to represent their to represent the 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 striking nature of their music um, and, and, and it and it persists i mean I, I teach college and i have you know it's one of those things where i have an 18 year old student will, will wear a shirt with it on it and they may have never even listened to the misfits but they'll <laughs> they'll, they'll have the, the crimson ghost on their shirt oh sure sure it's endured way beyond the band like you yeah. know it's a fashion accessory now it is a fashion accessory even justin bieber has been seen wearing the crimson ghost oh my gosh maybe he'll be their next singer <laughs> I I would welcome that. I think that would be interesting. I mean, every anything that has the potential to be an awful car crash, I endorse. Yeah. So let's move on because um, there's a lot of band after uh, after Walk Among Us. Oh, uh, there's a, you don't there's, have to tell a, me that. I, there's a lot of band, and I don't I don't even know where you want to start. What am I? One of the things I'm interested in is uh, how did the connection between uh, well, well, first, well, how how is it that Danzig ends up leaving the band? I guess. Um, well, I think like uh, you could shovel it all under that 
helpful term creative differences, but I think there were mainly lifestyle differences. I think it was, um, I think it was a case of when the misfits began, they were, they were dedicated to doing this thing called the misfits, but they didn't necessarily see that it could be like a, a full-time thing or see that they could make their life out of this band. And I think by 1983, when they broke up, <clears throat> I think Jerry and Doyle, no, I know for a fact, Jerry and Doyle were still working at their father's machine shop. They were, you know, they had nine to five jobs and the misfits, excuse me, the way they saw it, it was just like this thing that was eating up money and it wasn't really getting anywhere. And uh, something that all the <clears throat> that a lot of people say from that time, uh, like uh, when I interviewed uh, Frank Licata, uh he definitely stressed the point is like, I feel stupid for leaving the band. I couldn't like Dan, like Glenn was always saying, like, this is going to be we, we can really go places. And he's like, I just couldn't see it. I, I didn't have that 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 foresight. And I think the same thing can be said for <clears throat> Jerry and Doyle is that they said. You know, we've done a few tours. We we're uh we're losing money. We we don't seem to be getting any more popular or anything. And I think uh you know, there were others also they also were more they were getting more into heavy metal and stuff and uh Danzig's like Danzig wanted to keep things pure and said, No, we need to we need to stay we need to not change our style, we need to just let things happen organically and we need to move forward because this could really this could happen if we just put more time into it and i think that you know the kind of frustrations that people have when they're in their 20s and ever everybody wants to say that their way is right and they have difficulty compromising um <clears throat> and unfortunately that last that final show in october of 1983 in detroit uh, you know, they're for you know for a year or so before that, they uh, Robo from Black Flag had been their drummer, and he left because he was tired of living with Danzig. He couldn't deal with it. They weren't getting along. Uh, and then they had this Halloween show, and they had a tour. They were supposed to do a tour after that of Germany, and um, Dan and Jerry and Doyle are like, well, why don't we just ask Arthur Gooey to come back? And he, like, you know, he knows all the songs. We don't have time to teach anybody else the songs. And Danzig said, I don't want to work with Arthur Googie again. So let me just find somebody. So he got, uh, Brian Keats, who was drumming. He's, he played with genocide. He played with verbal abuse. Not like, you know, it's often characterized as like Danzig just picks some kid off the street, but like, no, the guy, he played, Brian played with these great, like verbal abuse is considered one of the greatest like hardcore bands of all time and genocide is nothing to sneeze at either. He, he was an accomplished drummer. Unfortunately, he didn't have enough time to practice with Jerry and Doyle and Glenn because of the Jerry and Doyle's work schedule. And then they get out to Detroit. Uh, Brian Keats is nervous. He drinks a little too much. He messes up a couple of the songs and they just like Doyle just kicks him off stage. And, um, the drummer from the Necros played the rest of the show. And I think it was just one of those, frustrating situations that if there wasn't all this other pressure, if they hadn't been doing the band for that long to that point, maybe they could have resolved it. But I think it was an easy place for them all to check out and say, let's go our separate ways because it's too frustrating. Mm -hmm. So from that point, even, even before that had Danzig already done something solo. Yeah. Yeah. He hit in uh, 80, 1981. He uh, he did, he put out a solo single, the "Who Killed Marilyn" single, where he played all the instruments um, because he said the Misfits weren't doing anything or they didn't want to do the song, and so he did it himself. And before the Misfits broke up, he was investigating putting together some kind of group, like some kind of super group with people from Minor Threat and uh, from Youth Brigade, kind of the, like the beginnings of Sam Hain, because um, he kind of felt like he he could see that the misfits were going to hit a wall soon but nothing there was nothing like uh you know there was no major step out of the band he was still committed to being in the misfits but then they break up yeah. and of course 
uh, Glenn has the most, I guess, commercial success anyway for a while, especially uh, at, when he has the band simply Danzig, right? And, well, yeah. And, well, but and before leaping to Danzig, though, right from the okay. after the Misfits, he forms Samhain, which, granted, while Samhain has not, uh, you know, I think. For a lot of people, the jury's still out on Sam Hain. I think they're great. They did something that was a little bit different and not uh, different than the Misfits and different from Danzig. Not very, you know, a little more, um, a little, a little more difficult, you know, just more, more goth, a little more, uh, a little darker than anything else. Um, but it kept, like, they toured all that time and put out records and they kept, they kept Danzig and his voice and his image and his music out there in the underground. And that really, yeah, that made the connection to Danzig in 1988 when he met Rick Rubin and Rick Rubin said, Hey, you're great. Your band, maybe not so great. Let's get some ringers. Uh, and they did. And that was, that was the transformation into Danzig, the band. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So. Uh-huh. And uh, what what do uh, at, at some point um, there's a, so so the Misfits as a band don't play for a while at this point they're kind of broken up oh no they're totally broken up there's no, they're totally they're broken completely up. broken up Jerry and Doyle retreat to the the wilds in New Jersey and they don't do anything they don't put a band together until 1987 88. Um, and it's not a it's not a band connected to the Misfits at all. It's this weird heavy metal project called Christ the Conqueror that had these strange biblical overtones slash undertones. Um, yeah, and there was nothing. And you you read interviews from Jerry at, around that time, and, and based on things that I've researched and heard, his whole attitude was like. I don't care about the misfits. Like, I don't care about Glenn dancing. None of this matters to me. I just want to do this thing, this Christ the Conqueror stuff. But, you know, and I think that would have been the end of it had Metallica not covered those one or two misfit songs on that EP. Like, you know, when they were on this, Metallica was on this inexplicable rise to the, being the most popular heavy metal band in America. Uh-huh. Uh, and oh, you know what? We're just going to cover some Misfit songs. And suddenly, this this band from New Jersey, who certainly had uh, an underground popularity, but maybe would not have been thrust to the uh, to the levels they were had um, Metallica latched onto them. Um, I think you know that's something I think is is kind of up for debate because I, obviously, as as culture moves forward and we unearth more and more artifacts from our past. Um, you know, there's more attention given to things that otherwise, like 10 years ago or 15 years ago, would have been forgotten or, like, you know, people wouldn't care about. Like, I feel like there are more Pair Ubu fans today than there were 15 years ago. You know, <laughs> there's certainly, uh, you know, there are more, like, Zog's Rift fans, Zoog's Rift. I don't know how to pronounce that. Um, yeah, so, but it, what, obviously at that point in time, Metallica is selling like hotcakes and they've got songs that Glenn and Jerry and all those people created put together. And so that became like, kind of like, okay, now the misfits are this viable commercial entity to some extent. Uh, so what happens now? Um, and, and what happens now is what Jerry decides he wants to put the misfits back together. Yeah. Well, I think the first impetus was, um, just that Jerry wanted to make sure that he and the other misfits got any money that they were owed from, you know, and Danzig had also put out without their consent before this, I should mention, there had been a couple of releases like Legacy of Brutality that Danzig released where he didn't credit. There was Legacy of Brutality was a compilation of misfits recordings where Danzig didn't, he released it. He didn't credit any of the other misfits and he recorded over much of the original guitars and bass and stuff and uh i think the suit initially was jerry and the other misfits wanting to make sure that they got the credit and they got whatever monies they were owed um but then uh at some point it was decided like you know what 
let's see if we can get some kind of performing rights to the Misfits name. And they did. They they did. The settlement, I think that was sort of the trade-off uh, because Danzig is still the majority, if not the entire uh, copyright holder for the original Misfits material. And everything is kind of no, – things aren't necessarily split evenly, possibly because there are so many hands in the pot. But Jerry does have the performing rights to the Misfits, and he is allowed to go out and play as many shows as he wants as – the Misfits. Um, so yeah, I don't, I can't say. As far as I know, I think maybe it was a situation where Jerry decided, you know, the Christ the Conqueror isn't really happening. Maybe I'm not as as divorced from the Misfits as I thought, and if there's a potential to make the fans happy and also make a little money. <laughs> go out there and like maybe rehabilitate my image or the band's image like let's go for it you know and I think uh, like you know like a lot of reunions people are like what (laughs) like this is Mm -hmm. how is this happening why isn't this thing in the past but uh, you know it 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 happened and I I don't think it was a bad thing I mean I I would I would have not come to the Misfits Initially, had it not been for the reunion, I wouldn't wouldn't really have been aware of them. And I, they, you know, the the reunion with Michael Graves and Dr. Chud and Doyle and Jerry was they were a great unit unto themselves. Mm-hmm. What is the connection between uh, the Misfits and Black Flag anyway? How could they have Robo and then Dez plays with them? <laughs> well, I think um, if you look back, Black Flag is the only band uh, that the Misfits felt weren't like shitting on them or weren't like phonies it seems like every other band people are like oh what do you think of the cramps and they're like oh the cramps wouldn't let us open a show so they all suck or like you know what do you think of the this band ah those guys are all gay so they're dumb uh and like for whatever reason uh you know and we don't think of uh you don't necessarily think of black flag as being that like as unenlightened as that is saying like, well, this band did something we don't like, so we are going to be derogatory towards them. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I think uh, musically, uh, I think the Misfits and Black Flag are very similar. They're both very powerful. They're both very cathartic, um, and they just they all the members they got got along. They they had fun. They enjoyed each other. They thought they were equals at the same level. And yeah, they're a uh, Robo. The Black Flag's drummer for a long time. Uh, he he ended up out of Black Flag. Um, he, he got tied up in England with some visa issues, and they're like, we have to keep touring. So they just got another drummer, and Robo had nothing to do. So, but uh, so Henry Rollins, I think, said, hey, the Misfits are looking for a drummer. So Robo went out to New Jersey and joined the band. And you know, there was just always a. Even after Robo left, he stayed on. Left the Misfits, he stayed on good terms with Jerry and Doyle, and um, that begat some kind of friendship with like like Des Kadena, the singer slash guitarist from Black Flag, was living in New Jersey for a while in the at least in the early nineties. Um, you know, they're just all chummy guys, and uh, you know, I think just because of maybe the time and the nature of their music, what they were doing, it was easy for them to get along despite whatever differences you might see in their respective personalities. I mean, I think a lot of people obviously tie Henry Rollins and Glenn Danzig together, but I don't think you would say they're the same type of person. Um, you know, they have the same temperaments or same personality. No, they're, 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 their stage characters were very similar, I guess you'd say. <laughs> kind, of, kind of aggressive, very, you know, alpha male kind of performances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Performances. sure, sure. sure. Uh-huh. So, um, let's see. So, so this, what you're calling the reunion misfits, along with lots of, they still have lots of alignment, but they, they've been going now for 15 years or so, haven't they? Uh, they, well, an entity known as the misfits has been, has, has existed in some form, uh, for 15 years. Like the, the four person reunion lineup that we know, there of Michael Graves and Jerry only Dr. Chud and Doyle uh only existed 
from like 95 to 2000. And then Michael Graves and Dr. Chud left and then they became a three piece and just Jerry, Jerry became the singer, which I think was another, another huge dividing point. Just when people were starting to become accustomed to like, okay, the misfits are now Michael Graves and this is what it is. And we're, we're accepting it. We're taking it. Suddenly that's over. And Jerry only singing now. And they got more like, and for Marky Ramone was in the band for a while. He was drumming for a while. And, uh, you know, I think it, yeah, but, and whatever you think of the lineup changes or the, the shifts in power. Yeah. The misfits have been at it. They have this, this reunions lasted longer than the original band. <laughs> so, um, and, 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 uh, at one point now, Doyle's not there anymore either. Doyle, your book seems to be centered around, um, you know, interpersonal conflicts quite a bit. And, you know. Well, yeah, that's, I think that's, I mean, isn't that the most interesting part of any band when you just, I mean, didn't the Ramones suddenly become a thousand times more fascinating when you found out Johnny stole Joey's girlfriend? <laughs> like, what? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, aren't, uh, who isn't, I'm really anticipating the release of that Clash documentary about that last album they did with those, uh, like those studio guys or whatever. That's like, you know, when Joe Starmer just said, the Clash is whoever I say the Clash are. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Um, yeah, I think the interpersonal conflicts, especially in, especially in a punk rock band that has always like done it for themselves and has always been very fierce, you know, about who, about we are outside of the system and, and we're gonna, we're all, all for one and one for all. We're a band of pirates and doing our thing and we're not gonna let the music industry corrupt us. Well, guess what? You're gonna get corrupted somehow or another anyway, cause people are people. And, um, you know, that we saw that with the dead Kennedy, like who thought the dead Kennedys would ever sue each other over songwriter like why like that's so insane um and so yeah it's it's wild that uh you know this band that uh that, that sings all these all these really seemingly pure songs of, of of anger and and disenfranchised uh feelings becomes like another like well you know i'm the majority shareholder in the band now so get out of my band or you know um like it's like I've been doing it the longest or, you know, whatever, like it becomes like rock and roll bullshit. Uh, and it, I, it's also interesting because these are people many times who have nothing else to fall back on or nothing else to do. Like, uh, you know, just, they have to live their, they have to live their lives being an ex misfit or like, what are they going to do? Like, I can't speak to Doyle's, uh, skill sets. I don't know what he's, I don't, I don't know if he is, maybe he's, maybe he excels at, at knitting or like maybe he's a great basketball player or something. But when you're in your mid thirties and suddenly you're, you're out of the, you're out of this band, you're out of like this gravy train that you have for so long, what do you do? Where do you turn? And I think the, you know, and that's the same, it, the same interest lies in like, you know, when Michael Graves was, was, was leaving the band, what is he gonna do? What, like, he's only, he, his career now is he's the guy who replaced Danzig, and now he's out of that band. Like, where does he go from here? You know? Um, I, and, inter I think the relationships in general are just very interesting. It's interesting that, that, the, everyone says, yeah, the misfits are Glenn Danzig's band. He wrote all the songs. Danzig is the guy. But Jerry only's been the guy, he's been the guy doing the Misfits for the past 15 years, singing dancing songs. Like, how do you wrap your head around that? And, and they've put out a couple of, haven't, hasn't Jerry only and the Misfits put out, uh, some original music as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They put it, yeah, with Michael Graves, uh, they put out American Psycho and Famous Monsters, two, uh -huh. two pretty great albums. I think if, I think it's a weird situation where, you call it the Misfits and people are going to be like, this doesn't live up to the Misfits simply because it's being written and produced so long after the, like things have changed so much. Like it seems like you're selling the, of what they created, but also if you don't call it the Misfits, no one's going to pay attention to it. And if you just call it like, you know, the Schmoes from New Jersey, 
uh, you know, these great records are going to be lost to time. And they really are great. I think they're great. Whether you want to believe they're part of the Misfits legacy, they are. Uh, and, and yeah, and so there are those two. And then the most recent uh, that Jerry Dez and the, uh, the drummer from Murphy's Law, The Devil's Reign, they put out uh, a couple of years ago, maybe, yeah, what, what, 2011, 2012. Yeah, they released The Devil's Reign. Uh, so yeah, they've, they've released albums. They're not, they're certainly not like, you know, those PBS specials where they trot out uh, you know, the Duke of Earl once a year to get his paycheck for singing Duke of Earl. You know, they're not just like this nostalgia joke. They're, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I guess to some extent you could say they are because Jerry, Jerry is, uh, only released like one album in the past 12 years and he's still mainly playing songs that Glenn Danzig wrote in the eighties or the seventies. But, you know, they're, they're writing original material. They're going out there and touring and, Mm-hmm. You know, and to the same degree, like, you know, Danzig is Danzig is now doing like concerts where he's playing Misfits songs and Sam Hain songs and he has Doyle come on stage and play with him. So, you know, to a, to you could apply like, well, he's becoming nostalgia, too, or he's at least being nostalgic. Mm-hmm. And, and now there's Black Flag and The Flag. Are out oh, there God, don't get me started. Don't get me. <laughs> don't even get me started. Well, I think the point is that, you know, these people, like you said earlier, you know, they're really just people and they have yeah. careers and, you know, they yeah. got to they got to buy kitty litter once in a while exactly. and they got to pay their rent. How is Danzig going to buy his kitty litter? You think he's right. going to get by on the strength of Death Red Sabbath? Listen, people want to hear <laughs> when death comes ripping. They want to hear it with Doyle. So just. Do a festival, deal with it, cash your check, buy your kitty litter. Yeah. So, in, in your in your uh, expert uh, analysis and opinion, James, do you think? And I know they tried this once, but will there ever be uh, a true reunion of of the original Misfits or the quote unquote classic Misfits, at least with Danzig singing? Um, I think that. As time passes, it becomes less and less likely. I think, um, you know, I don't want to say never say never. I mean, Mission of Burma reunited, and they've reunited for like a few albums now. Like, who, nobody thought that would happen. I think they're the police reunited. The police reunited. I mean, that <laughs> like people that was legend. Their fighting was like you know they were practically a living episode of Cops, and they reunited and. I think ultimately, I think the one thing you can always say about Danzig, regardless of where he is, is he's very principled, and there have been opportunities in the past for him to do this. And I think that um, I think that uh, if he hasn't done it yet, it seems unlikely. Like he's he's also a shrewd guy. He's not gonna like. There's a chance. Like everyone says, oh, the original Misfits, if they got they get back together, they would make so much money. Well, you know, not necessarily. Like, you know, they'd have to. They'd have to. I think they'd have to be working on a certain budget, um, and to accommodate all the people who wanted to be involved, um, and like where figuring out where they would play, how they would travel, and all that. Um, I think that you know Danzig probably sees it as like it's is the amount of money is not worth the hassle it would be behind the scenes, and for the same reason people also say why hasn't Danzig reun why doesn't why hasn't he reunited with uh with Chuck Biscuits and Erie Vaughn and John Christ the three guys he made the first four Danzig records with which I think there's no argument that those are for the best heavy metal albums ever made ever ever and people are always saying why doesn't he reunite with those guys like he doesn't want to yeah he could to him it's not worth whatever pain in the ass it would be putting it together dealing with it than the paycheck when he can just go out with guys that he's been playing with now forever how long and just do the routine and make his money and live his life um, so I, I think there would have to be some sort of major, uh, tragedy. Like, uh, you know, Danzig isn't married. He doesn't have kids. So we can't say like if his son got leukemia. Um, so, you know, I would be, I would be very surprised. Uh, but again, at the same time, I guess, I guess stranger things have happened. I guess. Hey, 
you know, David Lee Roth has been accepted back into Van Halen, for gosh sake. Well, I think, come on, I think that was an inevitability. I think once they, once, if you're dumb enough to piss off Sammy Hagar, I mean, come on, like that was inevitable. They couldn't even retain Gary Sharon. Like they had to get Lee Roth back. So, so thanks, James, for, for giving me the interview. But before we leave, are you, are you, what are you working on now? Are you writing any books or what are you doing? Uh, I've got another, I've got another book idea in mind that I've been, uh, I've been trying to trying to get some preliminary work done on. Um, yeah, I've been uh, I've been trying to work on that. I'm I'm mainly doing a lot of work trying to set up the book tour for this music leave stands, which will be in November. Uh-huh. And um, you know, I've got a couple. Uh, I've been working on a screenplay, Matthew. So oh, I mean, I've, I've, I've gone Hollywood. I'm actually yeah. sitting by a pool right now, and yeah. uh, I'm reading Variety. Um, <laughs> no, you know, I must have uh, <clears throat> like the most immediate work I have is uh, I'm writing a feature on the state of the American space program for a science magazine, um, which you know that what's more punk rock than NASA. Nothing. Nothing at all. Nothing so at all. Well, that's that's really it. Okay. Well, uh, thanks for giving us the interview, uh, James. I, I appreciate your time. Well, thank you, Matthew. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to a conversation with James Green Jr. about his book, This Music Leaves Stains, The Complete History of the Misfits, released by the Scarecrow Press in 2013. Check back with new books and popular music regularly for more interviews with authors of books about popular music. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. Thanks for listening.